Oh, for Craft's Sake is a podcast hosted by the Craft Council of British Columbia, a charitable art service organization located in Vancouver, Canada, as part of an institutional effort to have more conversations about contemporary craft, as well to highlight and promote the work being done by local craftspersons in British Columbia. The CCBC wishes to acknowledge that this podcast was conceived and recorded on the traditional and ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, Jasmine, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Alex? I'm okay. Happy to be back from our summer podcast break. Yeah, we're back just in time for the first day of classes. And back to school in BC. Actually, I think we might have overestimated when back to school was. People are going back early this year, but <laughs> thankfully I'm not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, we are back this month um, with a book club. So. Yeah, if you've been following us on social media or if you receive our newsletters, you'll know that this summer we selected a book for this episode so we could have a little book club. And we've been reading Gathering Blue by Lois Lowry. Alex, how did we end up picking this book? Well, a few months ago, we sent out a call for recommendations of books that touched on a topic related to craft or making. And we did receive a few responses from artists, most of them from our guest, Bettina, Bettina Matskun, who will be joining us in a bit. But it was on a visit to our local bookstore on Granville Island. Upstart and Crow, which just celebrated their one year anniversary on Granville Island. And if you're looking for a great little bookstore, that's that's the one. They have um, a great selection of Canadian literature and also a really good selection of candles. <laughs> yeah. Um, they recommended this novel, which lives in the same universe as The Giver. Uh, you probably remember from high school, but um, it is not a sequel, so we didn't really need to read any other book before or after. Well, maybe we will need to read something after. Uh, like I said earlier, the book is by Lois Lowry who was born in 1937. She's an American author, primarily of children's and young adult um, novels. She's known primarily for her difficult subject matter um, and her way of sort of building dystopian universes. So she's writing really unusual and difficult subjects for young adult readers. Um, and even some of them have been challenged or banned in schools, including The Giver which, as we said, is not a sequel, but part of a quartet of books. And I'll just tell you guys a little bit more about Lois Lowry. She is the daughter of a military dentist. So growing up, she was relocating uh, very frequently um, with her father. And she has a degree in English literature from the University of South Maine. So Gathering Blue, which is the book that we just read, um, tells the story of Kira, who is living in a dystopian sort of ruined society. Um, dystopian future? Yeah, dystopian yeah. future. Um, she's an orphan whose mother has recently passed from a supposedly uh, random onset sickness. And Kira's left to fend for herself in a society that does not value her life, um, or so she believes. Uh, after her mother's death. So the book covers a variety of themes. Um, we're focusing on its take on creativity, the value of being creative, the genius that comes with it. We see the theme of gender roles and the society structure that differs from our current society. And we're really excited to be talking about this book with CCBC artist Bettina Matskin, who creates stories about ecology, weather, and geography with her embroidered sails, maps, and sculptural textile work. Like Kira, Bettina uses primarily hand embroidery, uh, interspersed with paint and collage. She values a familiar and versatile language of textiles, Bettina holds a BFA in visual arts and a master's of liberal arts from Simon Fraser University 
and is the recipient of Canada Council and British Columbia Arts Council grants. Her animated films for the National Film Board using textiles garnered awards and an interest in narrative that continues to inform her work. She has exhibited in solo and group exhibitions across Canada, as well as in Korea and the United States. And her work can be found in national public collections such as the Surrey Art Gallery, Cambridge Art Galleries, and the Weldon Math Library at Western University. She lives and works in Vancouver, British Columbia, where she also writes professionally on the arts. Bettina has been a longtime supporter of the Craft Council of BC, previously sitting on the board at the council. Um, she currently sits at the awards committee, and um, you might have seen her work in our latest traveling exhibition, group exhibition we had by the end of 2020, per, uh, Personal and Material Geographies. So please welcome Bettina to join us. Hi, Bettina. How's it going? Mm, okay. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're okay. How was your trip to Revelstoke? It was fabulous. It was nice. just, yeah, it's, I just turned off my phone and just went hiking every day and it was great. Cool. That's nice. Really nice. Awesome. The lodge that I stay at, I usually do a bunch of little watercolors and then I photograph them and give them to the staff. Oh, nice. So I've got a record, but um, they're happy to have them and I'm happy to give them away. They're not super duper. They're just postcards. Do you go there frequently? No, it's expensive. So I have a little savings account. So I put every year, you know, I put 50 bucks in and 50 bucks in and, and then every three, four years, I decide to go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's a good plan. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Did you finish the book? I did. You probably finished it way before Alex and I. <laughs> well, I listened to it on audio. Do you listen to the audiobook? Yeah, I listened to the audiobook, which is great. And it was usually it depends on the reader, but it was it was well read. And um, and then I got the book out of the library and I just made a few notes. Um, so I don't sound like a complete idiot. <laughs> when you're trying to think of things, your mind goes blank, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I thought the whole thing of, you know, people who are damaged, that there's another society that just kind of takes them in stride. Whereas the one Kira was in, they were hung out to dry or be, or to die really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a lovely message for our time that we're all damaged in some ways. We're all damaged goods. So we just need to accept each other. And this, uh, the theme of, of overarching kindness and the importance of creativity, you know, that each person has their own strengths, I thought was a lovely, a lovely theme. Yeah. I found it to be really interesting too, that those like the strengths that the sort of three artists that come up in this novel. So Kira, the protagonist and Thomas, who she meets in the council. And then the young child who um, is being held to be the next singer. I found it very like, I guess I had a question that never got answered. And I don't think it would have ever been answered, but maybe was the answer to this was implied that these kids are kind of like treated as if they have some sort of like underlying genius. Mm. And, and then their parents all sort of mysteriously died or died under like sort of alarming circumstances or suddenly fell ill, um, were killed in a hunt, which we knew at the end of the book wasn't true. So are they, are these kids being stripped away from their families like very early on because they have this talent And were their parents maybe not accidentally dead or were they killed on purpose? Is that the impression that everyone else got? Yeah, I, I think they were. And I think the children were separated from them to, so that they could be directed in the service of that culture Mm -hmm. and they didn't want the parents interfering. And I think like with creativity, there's a bit of, um, 
rogue element, you know, like people who are creative often don't follow rules or, or, you know, keep going on the same path that, that there's this element of, of, you know, striking out and trying new things. And obviously the society was really rigid and wanted them to toe the line. Yeah. So maybe that had something to do with it. But I, um, I think uh, going back to what you said about having a separate place where um, damaged people are still, you know, part of the group, part of the society. In Kira, we see both sides, right? She's damaged right. physically, which would render her, you know, not a valuable asset for the society she lives in. But she also has this great... Um, talent that makes her valuable. So I guess if you yeah. look at it globally, it seems that for this society, the fact that she has this creative genius is way more valuable than the fact that she's physically damaged. Right. So, uh, you know, in her first chance at life, you could argue that, well, it was her mom and her grandfather was powerful. So that's why she lived. But even when she was at a second, I guess, life or death crossroads, she still was able to survive because of her talent. Mm -hmm. We can see that the, this society really, really values creativity, um, mm -hmm. even though they don't necessarily want it roaming around or being free. They right. do value it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's like she's she's not she's going to fill in the missing parts of the tapestry but at the end of the book you realize that she's going to do whatever she wants but but really what they want her to do is you know repair it you know maintain it and slowly add to it but there's that feeling of you know don't shake the boat too much yeah yeah there's this like you know very early on in the book Uh, Jameson is telling her that they'll they'll tell her what to fill in so she doesn't need to worry about it like they'll be able to direct the way history goes right or the way history is told and then by the end of the book she's sort of like no I'm going to stay here and I'm going to write it like accurately so I think it kind of brings up these um, ideas about like the biases um, in history writing and how histories are decided to be written and who gets the, the sort of privilege to write them and direct them and um, I found that like kind of to be a really interesting part of the book. One thing I also wanted to bring up, Kira talks really early on about having the threads that she works with um, like kind of guide her and then it's not necessarily like her knowing how to do this particular thing. It, yeah. The threads, they are, they are what teach her. And she gives the materials like a lifelike quality and like she really animates them. And then Thomas comes to do the same um, with the carving. And yeah, Bettina, I wanted to ask you like, how accurate is that for you as a creator? Like how do, the, do you see the materials having like lifelike qualities in your own work, especially because you are working? I yeah. do. And that's in, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I mean, the, the piece of cloth in her pocket actually signaled things to her and, and seemed to be quite animated. And I don't see it in that sense, but I do think that the materials have their own life in that when you start something, it never turns out how you think it's going to turn out. Like my medium embroidery is so slow that I tend to plan it out a lot ahead of time, but still each piece has its own presence in its own life. And, you know, sometimes the materials behave unlike how I think they're going to. The other thing that that brings up to me is that is that craft objects speak across time. Like, you know, if you've held a piece of something in your hand that was made 100, 200 years ago, you have a direct physical connection with the person who made it. Mm -hmm. And sort of an extreme version of that is um, a friend of mine made a series of Greek vessels. She was commissioned to do this. It's not her practice, but she she was commissioned as a potter to make these Greek vessels for another artist. And she said she was really touched because she felt she was making the same motions as the Greek potters, you know, 2,500 years ago. Yeah. 
And so craft, the materials do connect us in that way. And I find that um, really reassuring in a way. Yeah. Very human connection. And in, in that same topic, when, you know, you describe the material as having this other power, but also you being able to recognize that other, I guess, personality. Um, it, at some point in, um, in the book, when Kira's talking to um, Thomas and he says, oh, now they tell me what to carve. Um, but this is way back when I used to just do whatever I wanted. And she thinks to herself, well, when, when you, like, when you had it, like, can you lose that? You know, and she, she wondered because she herself had not been able to do her own thing, would she lose it eventually if she was, you know, too trained? Um, Mm -hmm. Do you also find this to be true, um, thinking about your own, I guess, natural talent or natural impulse versus all your training? Right. Uh, Well, the whole thing of creativity is is some of it's innate. Like I have an innate attraction to thread and textile that, you know, I I can't explain that. But um, a lot of it's acquired because you, you learn something, you practice, you make failures, you learn a vocabulary that you become more articulate as you learn to use it. Yeah, I think it it depends on all kinds of things. You know, it depends on your personality. It depends on your teachers. It, you know, depends on your cultural context. I mean, I know artists who lived in the former um, behind the Iron Curtain who said they could not make representational things that question the government so a lot of them went to color field painting or things that were non-committal um i know a lawyer's office where one lawyer bought the artwork for the office and he said oh no it all has to be abstract so it doesn't offend anybody and um you know that that you're in a certain context i guess um for me the risk as an artist is you know, you find something that works really well, and then it becomes a shtick, you know, it just becomes this, this trick that you do. And that's great. But and, and, you know, maybe I'm guilty of that. I have certain techniques and certain materials that I love to work with. But at the same time, I think I'm always aware that I need to try something different, or I need to set myself a different project where I'm challenged to convey something or represent something that I haven't done before. Right. Yeah. I couldn't help but think about like, like you said, art in the Soviet union and how like synonymous it was and it all looked the same. And you could tell that like art was only allowed to go in one certain direction. And I was thinking about um, the same thing in China under the, under Mao's regime and, and art being directed by the communist party and how it all came to look like so, so similar. I remember someone told me once that during like when the Soviet Union was still in place that all book covers had to look the exact same. So your bookshelf wouldn't, you know, have this like array of colors and different sized spines and, (laughs) everything was like identical. And I'm like, well, how would you identify a book in that case? Right. But yeah, that's definitely what I was thinking about when I was reading this book and the sort of like authoritarian control that um, the council has put over artistic expression. And I think that goes for science too, like under the Harper government in Canada, he defunded pure science, which is scientists fooling around with stuff, just like seeing what happens, you know, and, and the government wanted everything to be in the service of industry, you know, and I mean, that, that was their view. But to me, if you, you need a balance of things, but you need people that are just doing experimentation because Mm -hmm. that's where you discover stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's the same in a artistic process. You need, you need to take time off what you normally do to, try a different material to, to experiment with stuff. And yeah, if it's all directed and all, you know, corralled into one channel, then, you know, what you get is what you got. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Historically, even accidents have been, you know, have produced new techniques or new discoveries. 
Yeah, and it's it's the ability to see the accident, like Madame Curie noticing what is it, the radio, radioactive whatever. You know, like you have to have a certain level of skill so that you can notice the accident and go, oh well, I could use this for that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. One thing, like with the the culture in the book that that wants to separate these kids from their parents and sort of keep them, venerate them, but at the same time sort of direct them. Um, I was reminded that Kraft in German with a K means power, means might. And I'm sure I'm not a linguist, but I'm sure the words are are related. One comes out of the other, but it to me, Kraft is knowing how to do something. And we often see tradespeople and manual laborers as much less than university people. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's a problem with our culture is that, you know, everybody wants to funnel their kids into university, whereas a lot of kids aren't suited for that. And that there are a lot of different ways to be smart and mm-hmm. working with your hands. I, a guy just fixed my garage door opener yesterday and you know, it was a little bit of soldering and he kind of MacGyvered this little washer into the place and and it works, you know, and I just think, you know, stuff like that, that's, that's intelligence and resourcefulness. And we need that. Um, Matthew Crawford wrote that book, um, Shop Class of Soulcraft, and it's terribly sexist, but there's some good points in it. And, And he says, you know, we can outsource everything but when your toilet breaks or your car stops running, you can't outsource that. You need somebody who knows how to fix it. And that kind of know-how and ability is part of craft, I think. And it's, it's, it's so valuable that, you know, we need to uh, respect that. Yeah. It's also that skilled manual labor of any kind, whether you're blowing glass or you know, tuning up something, it's rewarding in the sense that it's tangible. Like there's something at the end of the day that you can see. And I worked a service job for many years and I liked my job, but at the end of the day, there wasn't anything. Whereas when I leave the studio, there's incremental progress and I see that. And it's important to me psychologically to have something that's tangible. Yeah, I think we sort of see what you're talking about in the book, too, how um, I think a lot of the laborers who are doing the building for the society are like kept in the fen and they're like considered to be, you know, dirty and uneducated and la 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 la. But yeah, these people are like absolutely dependent on having. or they're very important when it comes to, you know, maintaining society. My dad always used to talk about the, like, the wage gap um, between, you know, people like engineers who are being paid like a big bucks and have been like university educated to draw plans for something, but it's never them who are like bringing these plans into realization. And yes, a lot of the times like, oh, you have a draft in front of you and things don't add up because, you know, the person who wrote it is not physically like putting pieces together. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah, there, there's a different type of like um, of education, like you said, that arises there and it's very like hands-on and um, it's it's not something that you learn from a book. Yeah. And what you said, like you, you can't have one without the other. My my dad was did masonry and he was trained in Europe. He was a perfectionist. And he always felt that, you know, any building that went up, you know, it'll have the architect's name on it. But he felt that, that all the tradesmen should be on there too. Yeah. Because without them yeah. it doesn't <clears throat> it just doesn't appear. Yeah. And they're also ones that, I mean, it's theory and practice, right? Like I've worked in buildings where the heat doesn't circulate properly or, you know, the layout is just really stupid. <laughs> and if tradespeople were involved in the planning of things, it would probably work a lot better. I mean, both things are valuable. Like architects make things that haven't seen before and that's great, but but somebody has to build it and, and live and work in it. and all those things need to come together. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the Vancouver house that just recently opened in Vancouver. And then um, <laughs> when everyone moved in, 
they were like so disappointed that their apartments didn't, their like millions of dollar apartments didn't look the way the plans had shown them. And then a couple months later after living there, like um, a bunch of floors like flooded and all the people had to move out of their brand new apartments because <laughs> just like millions and millions of dollars in, in construction and in marketing like go into this stuff. And then it, the product doesn't come out the way it had intended to. I think though in the book there was something that sort of bothered me um not because it was something bad just I didn't quite understand like these things you're talking about having these two levels of you know the planning and the thinking of it and you know higher paying jobs versus the actual people who do the actual labor they're in the book they're completely separated mm. you know you don't have somebody telling women how to build their pens or how to build their fences. They're just like gathering twigs and they're just like doing what they think is the best way um, and doing it without any sort of drawing or planning. Same with the weaving, you know, it's um, mm -hmm. they are weaving what they're supposed to weave, but that, but there's no architect or there's no designer, there's no nothing. But then separately you have the building, which, you know, has plumbing has um you know uh tiles so where i i don't understand how i mean i guess it wasn't mentioned how the structure works in that how did they get the building was it from before did they keep it i think so you know did they destroy everything around it i think it was left over yeah it, it sounded like it was left over from a previous society and and the big poobas got to hang out there while everybody else was in the mud floor huts. Yeah. Um, but with the women with the weaving and um, with Kira meeting the older woman with the, the dyes and stuff, there's a real theme of transferred knowledge that, that knowledge is transferred from the elders to the newbies. And I think that's a really essential part of craft is, is some, you know, you can learn from, YouTube stuff now, but, but really when you have somebody who sits with you and shows you something and coaches you on how hard to push or how, you know, how to manipulate what you're doing, it's, it's a kind of interpersonal transfer that you're getting. And it, like, even when you hold an old object, you know, that there's sort of echoes in there of, of how they made something that you can you can pick up so it's really um it really is a, a social thing yeah, yeah. It, it's not isolated either like the idea of genius which comes up in this book for me is like these kids are like born with this incredible talent and and yeah that's true like to a degree but also like learning how to create is never like an isolated thing like you're saying like you do get lessons passed on from you from from other people who have been doing this and it's it takes a village yeah it does yeah and I think it's funny too that like they're really pushing Kira to to go to this woman's home and and to learn the art of dying and to pick up all this knowledge that she has and she does have like very like particular ways of doing things but they couldn't like send someone in to like look at the plumbing and then repeat it <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it seems odd that that they um, murder the old woman. I I didn't understand that because she, you know, they're losing they're losing this fountain of knowledge. But <clears throat> it was obvious that she knew about the other societies. So there's maybe some danger inherent in that because she knew other people had the blue dye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's something that I wanted to bring up too. Is that what is the the role of the beasts in this novel? And I thought, you know, when they killed off um, Annabella, who was the woman who was teaching Kira how to die, because Kira sort of reiterated that she had told her there's like no beasts in the forest. It's like hmm. I was like, are they using this as like a fear mongering tactic to keep people within the society, like sort of like a panopticon kind of self-regulation um, or self-policing to keep people from straying outside of society and recognizing that there is more, there is blue outside of these walls. 
when I was reading this part, I couldn't help but thinking of that movie, The Village. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's essentially a society that's uh, a very small town. Uh, you know, they have a council, they have their own rules. There, it seemed to seems to be a a, a little bit more primitive um, society. And the same thing at night, there's guards and they tell people there's beasts in the forest, so they shouldn't go past a certain point or past a certain hour in the night, you know, and I mean, I don't want to spoil a movie, but, you know, eventually a blind girl ventures out um, because I, th I think there's no medicine and they need a medicine or something. I forget. Uh, but a blind girl ventures out and she's the only one they let go because she's blind. Oh, no. And well, I mean, if people who are listening to this haven't seen the movie, you can skip. <laughs> but um, they when she emerges from the woods, there is like a highway and like a car going by, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's and it was this like uh, group that wanted to keep this society and their families, uh, you know, in what they thought was a better society than modern society. You know, right. they they thought it was a, a nicer time and everybody was closer and there was not a lot of technology. So they were trying to keep them like a control in a controlled society. I don't know. I, I kept thinking about that every time. And I was yelling like, they're not there. They don't exist. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but well, it's kind of Orwellian too. like in 1984, um, Orwell in the book, they're always talking about you know, being at war with these other countries. And I, when I was a kid, we had some relatives in East Germany behind the, the border that weren't allowed to leave. Like in that society, you were allowed to leave if you were over 65, so they didn't have to pay your pension. But other people weren't, were not allowed to leave. And I'm sure they, you know, talked about the greedy capitalists and all the terrible things that would happen. But on, on this side of the world, it was, you know, the, the bloody commies and, you know, bloodthirsty, whatever, you know, and, and so that fear mongering thing, you know, exists in different ways. I mean, the, the horrible stereotypes of Muslims now are just, I just think, you know, it's the same thing. They're, they're just fear mongering where, you know, you find out they're just people that want to, you know, cook stuff and do stuff with their kids and, you know, work or whatever. It's it, fear is is such a potent weapon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. You start to kind of realize that having people like believe in a certain thing is like really beneficial for the society. Like race, like being racist is like, you know, can be really conductive to to government policies and like support in voting and it kind of help maintain the status quo that is not so beneficial for society all the time. Yeah, Most and that society benefits from discussion and difference and argument. And, yeah. you know, as soon as somebody tries to shut it down, I think you, you have your antennae have to go up and go, well, sir, what's in it for them? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the character of Matt because he's such a little live wire, but but to me, he's like a go-between between the repressive society and the open society. Yeah. And he's, he's one of the, the outliers that live in the fan and leads a horribly hard life, it sounds like. But, you know, he's, he's bright and able and, and um, perceptive. So he's willing to run back and forth between the two, which that's a really interesting, I don't know in terms of, creative process or you know craft what what that person is you know maybe um, someone who promotes you or or who makes opportunities happen for you <laughs> yeah but like you mentioned before even um I think he does have a different kind of intelligence that you know Kira Thomas nor Joe have you know yes. he has that yeah. um interpersonal um, intelligence that yes. charm and resourcefulness you know mm -hmm. so I mean he does have some sort of invisible genius that doesn't end up in a product itself 
Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, he's like, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought him up because I wasn't thinking about it, but he does kind of crack everything open. Like he's the one who, who lets Kira know that this other society does exist and he goes yeah. and finds her dad and, and he flies under the radar the entire time. Like his mom doesn't seem like too preoccupied with him. Um, Jameson, who we know has great power and is like very conniving and manipulative and like he doesn't seem to be worried about this kid who who is a threat to what they're upholding and he's just like okay yeah bring this dirty kid and his dog inside give him a bath like he doesn't perceive this kid as anything threatening but yeah um, he underestimates him yeah exactly yeah and even his own reaction to finding out about the other society he's not he doesn't react like probably another person from the village would be like, you know, like, oh my God, you shouldn't have gone there. They're evil or whatever, yeah, uh, or they're useless. And um, instead he's like, oh yeah, they're over there. You know, like matter of fact, it's like, yeah, well, yeah, I found this thing here. Yeah. And they have blue. (laughs) And they have blue, exactly. They do have something that this like, you know, more developed society doesn't have. Yeah, have something that would really like, you know, change the way that they are telling their stories with this like mm-hmm. new color, right? Yeah, and yeah. even um, I mean, there's this other place that you know accepts people as they are because most of them have the capacity to, you know, understand how the others feel. You know, they have that um, empathy, but the fact that people like Kira or even Matt are able to recognize this without being part of the other more tolerant society tells you that, you know, this capacity to have a, to recognize humanity or to have, you know, compassion or to have empathy is not always something that you learn, you know, it's part of you because you're human. You know, that it's been sort of slapped out of the rest of the village by, you know, the governing people. That's a different story. But it it is in you, I feel like. Yeah, and, and when everybody is appreciated and everyone is allowed to contribute, then you have a more harmonious society whereas in Kira's society the the woman who's always trying to cut her down who thinks she should be left out and you know for the vultures uh, for the beasts you know that the, there's a pecking order and you know I, I think in you know that sort of quest for power and when power is only achieved not by what's the word you know when you actually deserve something but not meritocracy but by conniving and connections and muscle then your society is going to suffer because the people who can contribute in certain ways will be shunted aside and there's a real waste of talent and ability there yeah and true suffering too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. another big theme that I think we could talk about is um, all the gender roles that are, um, you know, depicted in the, in the book in that, you know, women have certain activities that they're confined to, you know, they can only do weaving. They can only have and tend to children. They can only work the, the fields, you know, Mm -hmm. and we see, for example, Thomas knows how to read and write and, Kira doesn't and she like makes a point of not learning you know like it's so ingrained and it's so natural for them what they have to do and what they can't do you know this is something that I've heard that it happens in in um, a lot of fiber arts you know this um, and in craft you know there's this idea or not this idea more like a perception that, you know, woodworkers are guys, embroiderers are women. You know, I don't know if you, you, you've come across it, Satina, in your work. Well, I know that embroidery is a female ghetto. I mean, there are men who do it. Um, sailors on the old sailing ships embroidered things, you know, um, you know, in many of the medieval guilds, men were the weavers. So, you know, it's something that kind of shifts in and out but 
I always find it rewarding, like at the culture crawl, when I open my studio and people come through, some people see, oh, it's embroidery and they walk by and then they back up to look again because of the subject <laughs> matter. And often I have lovely conversations with men who, who recognize certain things, like because there's images about maps and boats and landscapes and they want to talk about it and then sort of the medium kind of falls away and they, they get involved with the imagery. And mm-hmm. I think, um, I think contemporary embroidery is, is interesting in so many ways because people are trying different things with it and trying new, um, new kinds of imagery, new ways of presenting it. And it's not, you know, it's maybe often women doing it, but it's kind of blossoming into different venues and kinds of work. Mm -hmm. I had an experience at the craft council a couple of days ago when I was working in the shop and someone sort of asked me about Trisha's exhibition and whether or not it was weaving or tapestry. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, can it be both? But I said, okay, quickly just responded weaving because that's how Trisha explained it to me. And um, and then a couple minutes later, I like the man went off and, and walked and talked to his friends. And then he was paying for something. He says, by the way, that's not weaving, it's tapestry. And I said, okay like thanks for letting me know because I I didn't have the like uh the knowledge to like back up why I said it was weaving and then uh, the following day or sorry I missed the spot I said to him oh are you a weaver and he said no my wife is and he got very offended that I suggested that he might be a weaver because he seemed to be knowledgeable on the subject oh no but and then followed up with Trish afterwards. And she was like, no, like it, it can be weaving and tapestry with like, tapestries are woven. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, have, you have the Bayou tapestry, which is actually an embroidery. Yeah. Yeah. So people, people, yeah, the terminology is confusing. Yeah. So I bet I was like upset that this man had to take time out of his day to like tell me I was wrong, but also be offended that he like... <laughs> knew something about tapestry because it's it's for women and only his wife does that yeah it was you know how it goes one other thing I I thought was interesting is that um Matt saves the pendant that Kira's father had made for her mother and gives Mm -hmm. it to her and you know it's this thing that that has quite a lot of significance for her personally it Mm-hmm. I don't feel it was described that well. Like I can't picture it, but um, you know, it was a handmade thing. And I like the idea that, you know, a handmade portable thing has that kind of significance. And it's almost like a storytelling thing or mnemonic. Is that the right pronunciation? You know, like something that carries memory um oh, yeah no and, device you know I mean I have things that my mother used that were made in the village in Europe where she grew up um articles of clothing articles of jewelry and so these these small things that you know you won't see in the Venice Biennale but mm-hmm. that that maintain this presence in in families lives and there's a kind of tangible continuity you know, that, that a certain thing has a story attached to it. Yeah. Such, yeah. It's crazy how like small items that would be maybe meaningless for you or I, or to Matt in the story um, can hold so much for a single person. And I think, yeah, it really says something that he he took the time to, to gather this thing and return it to Sakira. Mm-hmm who then was able to like reconnect with her dad over the matching one. And the idea of like, he gets it for her and gives it to her, but he doesn't understand the concept of gift giving. Yeah. I will say giving presents because in German gift is poison. <laughs> I always hate saying it. I would never give you a gift, <laughs> but, but in the book, you know, he, he says, no, nobody ever gave me anything. And, um, Obviously, Kira has been given things, and mm-hmm. 
that craft objects, we often buy them or make them specifically for a person. And there's something powerful in that too. It's, it's not just generosity. It's kind of a, it's like talking to someone. It's like, here, I think you need this, or here, I think you'd enjoy this, or, you know, this will accompany you on your trip to such and such, you know, it's, yeah, it's very cool. I always find it really nice when people come into the craft council and see something that um, they like love and would love to have, but are wanting to have it more like tailored to their specific sort of, you know, how they would use it. A woman came in the other day and picked up a coffee mug and she said, well, I hold my coffee mug like this and the holes would be in the wrong spot. So I wouldn't be able to drink. And I said, well, the artists, like we, we try to, um, connect like the people coming into the store with the artists so that they can like custom have things or we have these paper mache dogs and it's so nice when people find one that looks exactly like their dog but other times people are like hey could you make a set of hamsters or (laughs) could it be something um more like tailored to reflect like my personal being and I always really love that yeah Well, I was reading about um, how the um, the robe tells a story through, you know, the embroidered sections. And as she described it, it like it was always a scene. You know, it was always, a you know, the sea, the grass, the land, you know, everything like that. And it seemed like everything that was told both in the song and um, the robe had to do with what the environment did you know it wasn't about human history it was about how you know there was ruin there was grass there was um you know like a nature flourishing and she mentioned how even the flowers were still there after the fire things like that so it it seems to me like um they base their their history a lot on what the environment looks like mm-hmm. um which all this time I was thinking about your work, Bettina, mm-hmm. <laughs> and how, you know, um, the landscape and what the world looks like, I think, informs what you are doing. I'm an only child, so I'm kind of socially awkward. And I, I grew up, you know, sailing and being outdoors. And I think the land for me is alive. It's like a character. It, you know, when I go to different places, you know, the sh- where I just went that the shapes of mountains have their own character and Mm -hmm. each little valley has its own character and um indigenous people think that the land is alive and i and elements of it like glaciers are alive and i don't think that's a flaky sort of new age thing i think it's a way of looking at the world and realizing that we're just little organisms on a much bigger organism that works at a different time scale from us. Mm-hmm. And like when I depict a landscape, I just really want to honor the nature of that place. Like the, um, in a canoe, I went across a line where two rivers meet and one was silty and one was green. And there was something just remarkable about that. You know, these, these two bodies of water encountering each other. And I think place also, I mean, our modern life, you know, you can fly anywhere, you can live anywhere, you know, it it just feels all very transient, but, you know, up until recently generations of people grew up in the same place and, there are real ties to the land, certainly for indigenous people. I mean, their histories are tied to the land. There are places where they have stories attached to the land on how to behave, you know, that, so the land, I think in the book, um, maybe that's an acknowledgement by the society that 
the land is what gives us everything. Mm-hmm. And it does. True. You're yeah. not wrong. Yeah. And I think like you were saying, Alex, the, the rope, um, it really demonstrates like cycles of like ruin and repair in their society. And I think that that, that really speaks to like what you're saying, Bettina, with the land informing us and our history and um, mm-hmm. the way we, you know, we move forward and naturally there will be like ruin and repair in nature occurring like on its own. And, and that's a really interesting phenomenon. And to think about that in relation to this book, like, you know, maybe ruin will come at the hands of, of Kira at one point when she sort of takes over the story on, on this rope. Yeah. And in, in craft practice, you know, you mm-hmm. always get something going and it's looking good and then you do something that wrecks it <laughs> yeah. or you know, something happens where it, it just doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, you could be wearing your favorite sweater or something and snag a hole in it and you have to fix it. And um, there's always, yeah, there are cycles of things. Yeah. Although I wonder if the cycles that they put in the robes, because it was them who directed what should go on their robe, I wonder if that cycle was a planned cycle, a planned ruin. Yeah, yeah. That- that could be, and that's something that Kira might disrupt when she mm-hmm. takes yeah. over what goes on there. Yeah. Yeah. Also, did you guys notice that in the song it's that like names of cities, or did you get that? No. No. You know, there's a, a little like four lines probably where you see this, like the songs, uh, a, a few verses. Mm-hmm. No. I have I have the book here. Were they written in like, like they weren't written outright? It was must have been like they were just like split in in different, um, like separated in different parts of the word, so that it, they look like different words. Mm. Like it says, ravaged all, Bogo, Tabal, Timor, Toron, Tatu, Nelgon, but they're actually like Bogota, Baltimore, Toronto. To now gone. Yeah. Did you get that? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I totally missed that. that. Yeah, I didn't. I thought it was just like gibberish. <laughs> yeah, it looks like gibberish. Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, oh, Toronto. Interesting. Because hmm. then he says, like, oh, there were names of the lost places. Hmm. So, I don't know. I just thought it was it was kind of cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can infer that they were like on the East Coast then. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you can also I guess understand that it is sort of happening in our reality you know in our maybe not in our reality but in our like based on real mm-hmm. or what even is real <laughs> you know just the, our times yeah I guess yeah, I guess that's sort of the attraction of science fiction is is to kind of project what what may be ahead and then think of all the ramifications of that that yeah well something interesting with the author is that she was um, a military child her dad was a dentist in the military and in World War II and she was doing a lot of um relocating and was probably mm. picking up on the sort of destruction and mm. ruin that um was caused by world war ii and being a child of that can probably yeah. be like quite eye-opening and all of her books are known for having this very like difficult unusual subject matter for for young adult or children's books which is what she primarily writes yeah so that's interesting to think of it in that light. Oh, I think this would be a great book for a teenager. I I just think, you know, there's so much to think about and talk about. And um, yeah, it it is kind of, you know, there's conflict and and sort of an element of adventure. And I think it would just really appeal to kids. Yeah, I think the whole series, well, I remember The Giver was in the reading list and um, um, I think it was junior high. Yeah, so The Giver um, is on many, like, scholastic reading lists and is, 
included in a lot of school curriculums. Um, so it was her book, uh, Numbering the Stars, which is about the Holocaust. Mm. Um, but The Giver um, and Number of the Stars have both been like really conflicted on and people have re- said a lot of schools have removed it completely from the curriculum saying that it's it's too like it's too much for for young adults to be reading and I think it's usually on like grade six seven eight like reading lists um Mm -hmm. I think I remember reading this uh reading numbering numbering the stars in grade seven or eight yeah I don't think that this is difficult subject matter for uh for young adults I think this is something that's like really important to read and has a lot of lessons in it and yeah I can see why some people Mm -hmm. I can see why some people might not want their children reading stuff like this but I don't know I think that I can't (laughs) difficult subject matter is important to read from a young age like it's good to not be sheltered from from the sort of like negative aspects of society Um, I read tons of stuff my parents had no idea what I was reading I just took golems of things (laughs) out from the library or book sales or stuff I just had stacks of books and (laughs) they were completely oblivious well maybe it stunted my growth a bit I don't know (laughs) I was raised on the Simpsons so (laughs) I I don't know I'm just of the view that that you know, kids should be allowed to read whatever, but the main thing is to discuss it with them that, yeah, you know, as an adult, you could say, well, what do you think about so-and-so or what do you think about Jameson telling this girl, her father was dead when he wasn't, you know, and how do you feel about this? Or how do you feel about this character? And I think that helps children. I, you know, articulate what, what they feel about stuff. And, you know, if you have comments too, then they would, you know, maybe reconsider what, what they think. So I think discussion is, is just huge. Yeah. Yeah. Building critical thinking skills early on, it would be so beneficial to, you know, making your way through life in the future. And and that's what literature is. And that's what art across the board is for, is for us to understand each other and to be able Mm -hmm. to walk in each other's shoes, even if the other is fictional. Yeah. Yeah. They say in the book that they describe an artist as someone who is able to make beautiful things, but I think art is so much more than that. And, you know, it's very core. It's someone who was able to look at things differently and, and present a different outlook on things and be yeah. critical towards the things that we are seeing or not seeing. Yeah. 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 It's, it's all communication. Yeah. 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 I really enjoyed the book. It's a really easy read. Um, like I blasted through it really fast. It's a quick read, um, but there's so much in it that, to, that there is to learn from and especially with regard to how we treat one another and, I don't know. I think I yeah. would maybe go back and read the rest of them because I want to know more about this like other society that's only revealed at the end and see how, you know, other people um, who have other jobs are being treated and how, how what their role is in society. And then, yeah, I'd like to see how it all ties together in the end as well. Well, and, and how, yeah. the, how the people deal with Kira's new version of things. Yeah, like, I wonder are if they that's by it? Do they want to get rid of her because she's threatening the, the status quo, or yeah. does it suddenly um, enlighten people? Yeah, that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But Tina, thanks for talking to us about the book. We're glad you joined us. Yeah. Yeah. We, of course, want to talk about your your practice and what's going on in your life, too. Do you want to tell us about what you're up to and your upcoming exhibition at the Richmond Art Gallery? Yeah. Um, At the Richmond Art Gallery, starting September 10th, uh, there will be an artist talking to her September 12th, but you have to go on their website to register for it. It's limited attendance 
um, but I will be there before and after the talk and tour. Um, it's a series of life jackets I made. Um, they're orange and red canvas. They have sort of stiff um, foam inside them and the interiors are embroidered and they're presented on a mirror. And this is the first exhibition where all seven of them are together. They're on a mirror, so it looks like they're afloat or they're, you know, they're on a, a watery surface. The reflections, the embroideries, the imagery in the life jacket is right side up in the reflection. So you have to kind of bend over a little bit and look into the reflection to see what it is. And it's images of nature, but it's also thinking about refugees and just basic human needs like peace, shelter, food, but also um, in some refugee camps, I read that um, men are very depressed because they have no agency. They don't have meaningful work. So the idea of work as being really central. I mean, I know if somebody took my craft art practice away from me, I would, I would just be despondent, mm -hmm. you know? So the idea of, of having work and a purpose is really important. So I have bees uh, for that. Um, and also that in many refugee camps, women open little salons, you know, to there, there's this element of beauty that's important to them personally, but also just that aesthetics matter. And it's a way of maintaining morale and sort of self-preservation. So there will be the seven life jackets. Um, it's also in a way um, proposing that, that nature needs to be rescued and that many refugees now are climate refugees, that people are forced mm -hmm. to migrate because where they live, you can't live anymore. And I think we had a taste of that this summer. I mean, the people of Lytton had to flee at a moment's notice. Yeah. And, you know, the, some of the crops and the prairies are total failures because of the drought. So, you know, people migrate not for something to do, but because they're absolutely desperate that they, they can't stay where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and also included in the show are three. I've been uh, gathering old backpacks from other hiking buddies and a lot of them are just totally thrashed. So I've been taking them apart and combining them with embroidery. So again, ideas of landscape and the backpacks are not functional anymore, but in a way they're carrying the landscape. So what does that mean? You know, instead of walking on the landscape to carry it, there's sort of the idea of responsibility and our relationship to place. And there are, I think six, five or six other artists who, several of whom work with craft practices, mm -hmm. um, different backgrounds, different ages, but all women. So it will be a very interesting show, I think. Yeah, and it's called A Practice mm -hmm. in Gestures and it opens on September 10th at the Richmond Art Gallery. Yeah. Cool. Alex and I will have to go check that out. Yeah. Road trip to Richmond. No, and take the Canada line and then you trot through the mall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> turn it into a shopping trip as well. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed our discussion about Gathering Blue. If you would like to participate in any future book club discussions or if you have book suggestions, please email us at overcraftsake at craftcouncilbc.ca or visit craftcouncilbc.ca slash podcast and leave us a voice message. Stay tuned for our next episodes. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at craftcouncilbc or sign up to our Craft Contacts newsletter by visiting craftcouncilbc.ca.
So yeah, now I'm I'm gonna go to my studio now and, and try to pick up where I left off before I took my massive week-long vacation. Oh. <laughs> That's a hard part, just getting back into it after you've been on vacation. Well, I learned yeah. this thing uh, when I teach workshops. The, the very first thing I tell people is the best thing I learned about <clears throat> embroidery and, and craft practice was from Ernest Hemingway. And in um, A Movable Feast, which he wrote about his time in Paris, he said that when the work was going really well, he always stopped, he put it before the well of his writing went dry. <clears throat> so I'm imagining mid-sentence or something. So that when he came back to it the next day, he could just sit down and pick up and carry on. And I read that like when I was 20 and it just struck a chord. And ever since I have always left a needle threaded or left what I'm doing in the middle of it so that when I come to work, I just sit down and start working. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do. I just start working. And then, and then as I'm working, then I think about what else I'm going to do. So thanks, Ernest. <laughs>